Welcome to Pushing the Limits with your host, Lisa Tarmody, where it's all about health optimization, anti-aging, longevity, and being the very best you can be. Brought to you by lisatarmody.com. Well, hey, everyone, and welcome back to Pushing the Limits. Today, I have Ryan Smith to guest, and Ryan is one of the most intelligent people I've ever come across, absolutely brilliant. He is an expert in peptides, and we do a deep dive into peptides, what they are, um, some of the favorite peptides that he has. He was the founder of uh, TaylorMade Compounding, which was a very big or is a very big company that does peptide production all around the world. There's different labs that do this and they work with doctors all over the world um, helping with people um, do peptide protocols, which are really one of my favorite subjects uh, that I've been focusing on a little bit lately and would like to see it back down here in New Zealand a little bit easier to uh, more accessible as well. But uh, this is a really deep dive into peptides and also into uh, advanced epigenetic testing. So he is now the CEO of True Diagnostic, which is advanced epigenetic testing, where you can discover your biological age as opposed to your chronological age, how many times you've been around the sun, but actually how old you are from the inside. Um, and they use true age. So they look at epigenetic markers on your DNA and create an index depth report to let you explore insights about your aging and the methylation patterns and that affect uh, gene expression. Now, this is really, truly revolutionary and very cutting edge. And I'm excited about this testing. There's different modalities that are now available for testing. Um, And it really gives you an insight as to how well you are doing. So up until now, we haven't had any idea how well we are aging. We may be doing our exercise and our diet and all of that sort of stuff, but we don't know if we're actually having an impact. This gives us a way to measure how is uh, what sort of impact that sort of work is having, um, and you're able to test and then retest again, say, in 12 months' time to see where you are. You don't want to be testing every week. It's not going to show anything. But these methylation markers, and they also use the Dunedin study, uh, a very, very big study that's been going since, I think, 1972 with a 1,000 people in New Zealand, little old New Zealand, who's responsible for this amazing study. And Ryan goes into a deep dive into that and into this advanced epigenetic testing to see how well you are aging. I have a number of clients who have done this test uh, and I'm awaiting my results. And it's it's fantastic. It's giving you an insight as to where you are right now. And if it's good, you know, maybe you're a few years younger than your actual chronological age and it shows that all the stuff that you're doing is, is having an, an effect. And if you're not so good, it just means, okay, I've got to do some work here and get into gear because I'm aging faster. And we go into all the ramifications of aging even a couple of years slower than what you should be and how that can really massively impact your chances for living a long and healthy life, which is what we're all about on the show. So I hope you enjoy this episode with Ryan. Um, It really is one of the the best episodes I've done, I think. It was absolutely uh, fantastic to have an hour of his time. So enjoy the show with Ryan Smith. Well, hi, everyone. Welcome to Pushing the Limits. Today, I'm super excited. I have Ryan Smith with me. Welcome to the show, Ryan. It's so cool to have you. Yeah, thanks so much for having me, Lisa. I appreciate it. 
Uh, you are just, uh, uh, um, I've been listening to your lectures for the last three days, I think, nonstop in the car and, um, and, and been hearing you speak in my sleep, even like it's just been so, there's so much to take in. You're such an interesting person and, um, your knowledge is just immense. And we're going to be diving in today into two areas, hopefully, if we get enough time into peptides and also into true diagnostic, um, your, your age company, aging testing company. Um, but before we dive into the weeds, so to speak, can you give us a little bit of a background on, on you and where you come from and what you do? Yeah, definitely. I'll, I'll try my best to make it uh, uh, short and sweet and consolidated. But um, my background originally as an uh, undergrad is biochemistry. I always loved science and, and really thought I wanted to go to medical school. Um, so after uh, undergrad, I went to University of Kentucky Medical School. Um, I pe- went through my first and second year, which most of the actual, I would say, clinical schooling, um, passed my USMLE step one, uh, got into the third year, uh, which is mostly the clinical portion, and absolutely hated it. Um, and, and so I made the maybe the very super financial decision to leave uh, at the, that time. And uh, about three months later, ended up creating um, a compounding pharmacy called TaylorMade Compounding. Um, and really the idea with that company was to uh, to focus on unique uh, peptide molecules and, and proteins uh, and uh, to offer them to physicians here in the United States. And we just sort of uh, hit, a, hit a really good niche uh, in that area. And that company grew really, really quickly. It was the fourth fastest growing company in healthcare um, in 2019. And then uh, in uh, early 2020, um, we decided to, to sell that company um, and instead created my new company, which I'm working on now, which you mentioned is True Diagnostic, which really specializes in epigenetic methylation testing uh, for age diagnostics to tell you how you're aging. Um, and uh, and I was able to bring that uh, idea of epigenetic methylation to, uh, I would say, a more tested diagnostic that we think will be very popular. So a lot of different categories, but certainly I would say the two areas of expertise are, are certainly uh, epigenetic methylation and aging, as well as then the peptides. Yeah, and this, this is, it's just incredible to do so much in such a short life, and you're so young, um, you know, like to, to achieve that much in that short a time. Uh, TaylorMade Compounding is, you know, an international company now and, and huge in the peptide space. So uh, shall we dive into the peptides first? If we, if you, you know, like I'm, I'm a biohacking uh, absolute maniac. I love longevity, um, anything anti-aging. And I live in New Zealand, and New Zealand is behind the eight ball like way behind the eight ball. I've been talking to a few friends down here, like we've got to get these peptides and get this sorted down here. And um, I, I, I know that uh, TaylorMade has got a, a office in Australia, I believe. Yeah, um, so yeah, maybe we need to, you know, hijack you and get you guys down here as well. But um, peptides, can you just go, we'll, we'll go through a few of the peptides that I really want to, you know, get your um, your insight on. Um, and I know that right now you're deep in the, the the true diagnostic company, but so just, you know, what you can remember, and I know you're, yeah. you know, I got a very big brain in this space. Um, peptides, what are they and how did it, why is this such an interesting area for people that are interested in longevity and optimal health and, and performance? Why are we, why do we need to know about this stuff? Yeah, certainly. So, uh, you, you know, peptides are sort of just defined as short amino acid chains. Um, so piecing together these amino acids to peptides and ultimately if they get large enough proteins. Um, so really the size of those amino acid chains are really the differentiator between a peptide and protein. But uh, fundamentally, they are, uh, I would say, acting as the infrastructure of the body. I always like to go back 
to sort of the central dogma of biochemistry, which connects a lot of the things we'll talk about today, which is, you know, your DNA uh, creates mRNA. Uh, that mRNA is transcoded uh, into peptides and proteins by piecing together these amino acids piece by piece. And so with a lot of these peptides, um, we can mimic the body's natural processes um, and sometimes improve on them um, with uh, different variants of these different peptides. And for many, many years, uh, this area of development has been really ignored by uh, pharmaceutical companies. And uh, not because they're not excited about it, but because it had some limitations, mm -hmm. mainly like bioavailability, um, where, you know, you, you don't want patients to inject, you'd rather have them take an oral capsule and peptides generally are not as good for that. The same with uh, frequency. Usually you might have to inject frequently because some of the half-lives of these products are so small, but what we've seen over the course of the past decade or so, even uh, slightly more is that, um, we found ways to solve for some of these issues. So now all of the drawbacks of peptides have been, uh, essentially improved upon and, uh, that only leaves all their benefits, which are quite extensive, um, particularly things like uh, being very specific for receptors and not having any drug-to-drug -drug interactions. And so generally, you can be very precise about what you want to happen um, and really avoid all the things you don't want to happen. And so now peptides are growing uh, as a pharmaceutical development uh, pipeline and product, but um, we're also seeing a lot more of their, their use uh, in individuals who want to optimize their health to sort of find pathways that are new and uh, intervene in those pathways. Oh, absolutely amazing. And there are like there, I think there's something like seven thousand peptides and more sort of coming all the time. So it's like you're really hard to stay up in this space. But um and they've all got these complicated names that you're like, oh my gosh, what was that one again? Which number? Um and but we can sort of um look at these as sort of signaling molecules, can't we? And they're mostly not uh processed out in the kidney and the liver, like most of the drug. Uh, drugs that we use and medications that we use. And so we, there is less drug to drug sort of interaction problems. There are a few exceptions to, to that rule, I believe. But, um, as a general rule, this is like using the body's signaling mechanisms. It's way it produces things and then just giving back what it maybe made when it was younger and not doing it when you're older. Is that the sort of thing that we're sort of looking at here? Yeah, absolutely. I think that, uh, that that's exactly right. I couldn't have said it better myself. I think that, uh, um, yeah, that, that's a lot. I think where even the first types of peptides were used is, is mimicking these endogenous. So, so actually some of the first synthetically created peptides were things like insulin, which obviously diabetics yeah. use. Um, and it's a very similar thing for people who want to optimize where we might have things that are slightly deficient and we want to encourage the body's natural processes to work a little bit more like they did. No, perfect. And and we can break down the peptides into sort of areas, if you like. So if we started to, you know, list off a few of the areas of of of, of peptides, um, I've got experience in some of them and not, you know, not a heck of a lot of them. But um ones like, like the mitochondrial peptides, like mod SC, uh um help me out here with some of the other names. Um S -S -S can you yeah. SS31. Yeah. Yes, human and thank you. Um, yeah, explain like what modesty is, is a is a very good one. Uh, tell us a little bit about modesty and what that does. Yeah, so uh, modesty is an interesting peptide that is actually not encoded by our somatic genome, but mm -hmm. actually genome found in our mitochondria. Um, and usually it produces this product to increase cellular energy, um, essentially increases AMP kinase, um, which then leads to more mitochondrial oxidation. So sort of just producing more energy, producing more ATP. Um, and in some cases, this can become a little bit of a dysregulated process. Yeah. Um, good examples, even in diabetic children, uh, you know, children who become overweight or obese, they generally 
stop making this as much. And, and that leads to lower mitochondrial function, lower energy um, across all systems. Um, and, and so a lot of people have uh, actually even originally started supplementing the Mod SC uh, for things like athletes to help improve the mitochondrial biogenesis, um, to improve, increase some of that energy production and then see some improvements in athletic performance. But um, but the host of connected diseases include a lot of things that relate to insulin sensitivity and type 2 diabetes and weight management. Um, and so the Mod SC is, is one of those products that uh, is, is certainly exciting and, and tied into all those pathways. Yeah, this is amazing. And of course, the, you know, um, at the base of, of many, many diseases is the mitochondrial dysregulation. And, and even if we thought, you know, look at things like the latest pandemic that we've all been through, some people are really dealing with mitochondrial problems after having uh, COVID and, and things like that. Um, and this can maybe help. Um, I believe the was it the LL thirty seven? Is that considered a mitochondrial pe- pe- peptide or or not quite? Um, the, no. the, that is an antimicrobial peptide, a human methylcedin. Ah. Um, uh, and uh, but but it's still an interesting one nonetheless. Uh, and actually, actually, probably one of the fastest growing areas of peptide development are in some of these natural antimicrobial peptides. Um, and the reason being is uh, with the frequent use of antibiotics uh, and antibiotics becoming less effective, uh, people are looking at ways to, I would say, help fight bacteria. Um, and so the whole 37 is another interesting one there. Yeah, no, excellent. So um, so we can take some of these. These are mostly subcutaneous injections. Uh, and, you know, you really you, you need to be working with a health professional, a doctor who is qualified in this sort of stuff. And this is uh, uh, one of the problems we have in New Zealand is there isn't any <laughs> or hardly any. <laughs> I'm still trying to find them. Um, <laughs> and and um, But this will change very quickly, I believe, in the next few years. And so I think it's like very important to be up on this because, you know, America's way up on this and, um, and, and actually Russia's right up on this, isn't it? So if we, if we talked briefly about Dr. Kevinson and his work with bioregulators, like this is over what, 40, 50 years of, of, of research. Um, what, what's your take on like Dr. Kevinson's work and, and, um, it's sort of been ahead of America in, in many ways for, for many years. I think America's sort of catching up now, but, um, yeah, yeah really yeah, interesting yeah. stuff. Yeah, certainly right. You know, uh, you know, the Russian peptides, I would say, you know, Dr. Kavinson's a huge player in there. Um, but there's also even Russian peptides that have been developed by, you know, National Russian Academy of Sciences related industries like the CMAX and the C-Link for things like neurogenesis or neurological benefits. Um, and so, uh, yeah, Russia has certainly been a leader classically. Um, again, a lot for the same reason is sometimes these things start with a little bit of human performance enhancing um, and then mitigate into sort of other areas. The uh, Dr. Kavinson um, and his sort of field of bioregulators has been more about taking uh, in, endogenous peptides related to different organ systems. Um, and then, you know, I would say using them in a lot of different areas. Um, there are some Kavinson peptides I am a huge fan of, um, like the epitalin, for instance, yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. or the epitalamine, um, as it's called. And, and uh, so that is a, a, a pineal gland related uh, peptide product, which I think has great data for things like cardiovascular disease and, and longevity. Um, I think it's actually a little bit, uh, sometimes I think though that there's uh, some critiques about some of the Kavinson peptides as well. Um, you know, in the case of epitalin, I think a lot of people got really excited because there was one study which showed that it could increase 
telomere length by 33% in long fibroblasts, which is an incredible increase. But I think that it got people interested maybe in it for the wrong reason, because uh, I think in some of our testing, we haven't seen that it has much of a telomere length increase, but I, I certainly believe that the regulation of the, the pineal gland and, and some of the things that it's doing for cardiovascular disease are amazing. That particular study even has a 15-year follow-up study um, where they have dosed patients over the course of, you know, uh, essentially two or three years, and then uh, followed up with them 15 years later and saw massive improvements in, in the uh, rates of uh, cardiovascular disease, uh, for instance. And so some of those are amazing products. But on the other hand, a lot of Dr. Kavison's products aren't released. They're sort of proprietary. So we don't know their sequence. Um, we don't know how they're working or the mechanism of action. Um, and that leads to some, I would say, some, a little bit of skepticism. Um, so I traditionally like to use uh, or even talk about the ones that have more data and are widely validated by many different groups. Yeah, exactly, exactly, and um, and and then you've got the whole problems with translations as well as the you know the proprietary stuff. But it is very interesting. I'm starting on epitalin shortly, so I'll <laughs> let you know how I go. Please, um, yeah. Yeah, it's going to be exciting. And, and some of the uh, bioregulator peptides are actually oral, um, aren't they, as opposed to the subcutaneous, which we, you know, usually having to deal with. And, so, you know, subcutaneous injections put a lot of people off because they're, like, scared and how do I, you know, how do I dose this and how do I, you know, get the bacteriostatic water or the whatever I have to do. <laughs> to do it? And it's actually not that onerous, but, um, yeah, it can, you know, from a from a pharmaceutical development point of view, I suppose that is one of the the the, the reasons that it's been sort of slowed down and it's uptake and why sort of things like bodybuilders, for example, are all over this, <laughs> as they <laughs> usually all over everything at the forefront of um, yeah. pushing the boundaries. Um, <laughs> and, and actually, that's good. It's a bit like space travel, isn't it? It's just, you know, when when we push the boundaries of things, it, it sort of helps the rest of us catch up um, <laughs> a yeah, little bit later. Um, yeah. Let's look at some of the other peptides, you know, like one of the famous ones, BPC-157, um, is known for healing its healing powers, like quite amazing healing powers. It's almost like, you know, the Wolverine movie, you know, you know <laughs> there is a thing called the Wolverine stack. Um, but yeah, tell us a little bit about BPC-157. Yeah, BBC Mobile is one of my favorites, um, yeah. certainly. Uh, you know, uh, whenever we first uh, started doing it at the pharmacy, BPC-157 only had one study. Um, that was it, wow. sort of looking at, at uh, I would say, uh, tendon repair and recovery. Um, but then, you know, more data started to come out, more and more data, and you saw that it had healing effects sort of all over. Uh, we saw it, uh, you know, in soft tissue, in ligaments and tendons. We saw it in gastric mucosa. We saw it even reducing gastric reflux by uh, in, in some studies. And so it had this sort of multifactorial action, which I think is the reason for its name, body protection complex is what the BPC stands for. Um, and so I, I love that product. I think that it's especially good at two uh, indications, which is um, uh, GI improvement, whether it's from a multitude of etiologies um, or tendon and, and, and ligament repair as well, um, really helping increase that type two collagen, um, which is obviously very, very important. And even for things like wound healing. And so, um, you know, it's a, it's a very interesting product with, uh, I would say a lot of different mechanisms of actions, um, but one that is, is certainly, I think, in a word, great for healing. Yeah, I, I mean, I've used uh, BPC 1.7 with my mum, and um, she had a uh, fell off the treadmill at the gym when I wasn't looking one day, and we had this horrific, you know, um, facial injuries and concussion and wounds on on the on the shin and her age at eighty, you know, nearly eighty two. 
things are slow to heal, right? Um, I yeah. put her on PPC one five seven along with a couple of other things, and hyperbaric was you know another one of the things. But the I'll send you a photo afterwards of like before and after, like ten or eleven days apart. These two photos, and one was just horrific, like you know just smashed up, and the second one was like perfectly normal. Uh, you know, ten eleven days later, it was just phenomenal. Like I was just like, wow, that's pretty. Yeah. That's pretty amazing. Um, so that's BPC one five seven, and I'm very very yeah i'm excited about that one and then i've also used the the oral bpc 157 for the digestive system um again we had a bit of an issue with a digestive bleed um with mum and and uh so that was definitely a a go-to along with kpv um to try to heal that um you know that bleed there and uh well we haven't had anything else happen since so i don't know if it's worked or not because you really can't have a look can you but um it was very very exciting um couple of other areas uh the thymosin alpha one is another one of my favorite ones can you talk to us about thymosin you know the immune system peptides if you like yeah definitely the thymosin alpha one is uh i would say certainly one of my favorites as well i, I think it's all I've, I've usually said between ss31 and uh and that you know, are, are typically some of my favorites um you know the the thymosin alpha one is great for the immune system because it's an endogenous peptide um so it's produced already naturally within our body um particularly you know it's a hormone secreted by the thymus and it helps stimulate t-cell production it helps assist in the development of b-cells to plasma cells um you know it it, it does a, a lot of things just sort of to be immune modulatory. So not always being immune, uh, I would say, activating, where mm-hmm. you might get you know too much immune activation. Um, but it, it has a whole host of actions which can cause the immune system to help fight tumor cells. So that's actually how um, it got sort of uh, original FDA drug approval was for sort of a, a, a drug to use with cancer um, yeah. in particular um, and to help first help the immune system find those cancer cells, but then also to activate those immune system cells to to get rid of them and kill those cancer cells. Um, and so as an immune modulatory ingredient, it, it is a, a certainly one of my favorites. And even in the early days of COVID, we were thinking, you know, this is a, you know, a great product to, mm-hmm. to be able to, to help modulate that inflammation, which comes with COVID. Um, and, you know, within days, I think of, of even, uh, you know, all the lockdowns, there were articles in Nature saying how, uh, you know, effective it would be from a mechanistic action. So it is certainly one of my favorites, but everyone can use an immune system boost throughout their life in many different uh, areas or locations. And I think ThymusNop is excellent at that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, no, oh, you know, once again, just going back to <laughs> anecdotes, um, use ThymusNop Alpha 1 after COVID and also for cancer. Um, and very, yeah, like you can't really overdo this one, can you? And it's, it's, it's a very, got a very good safety profile. And our thymus gland sort of disappears as we get older and uh, starts to shrink in our ability to. Uh, so, so giving it back what it would otherwise be doing, and another one is thymus and beta four. What's your take on thymus and beta four? Yeah, so despite the similarity in names for, for anyone who's listening and not familiar, um, very different in action. Um, right. uh, you know, the thymus and beta four is um, going to be really working not on the immune system as much, certainly has some some immune effects, um, but more so I would say in its main indication is for muscle repair and recovery um, and increasing things like angiogenesis. Um, it's been a favorite of athletes for a long time as well because they can help reduce delayed onset muscle soreness after a heavy workout. They can improve angiogenesis and blood flow to these different areas. Um, and then it, it sort of helps with uh, sort of actin and, and myosin sequestering uh, to make sure that you're helping build this additional muscle. And so it's definitely been a bodybuilding product for 
for a long time, but it's also been studied in a lot of other diseases as well, such as, you know, retinal diseases. That's actually probably where it will get FDA approved actually first um, <laughs> is, uh, is in sort of eye drops to help improve certain types of retinal diseases. Um, but it is a product that everyone uses in that same repair and recovery stack. So oftentimes a lot yeah. with DPC-157, um, but, uh, but I think it's specifically BBC-157 would have more of a lean to ligaments and tendons, while the thymus and beta-4 being a little bit more soft tissue and muscle. Wow, this is amazing. So a really good stack to put together. And yeah, that is the, the, the you know, part of that Wolverine stack that we, we talked about. And SS31, can you just, uh, you know, uh, give me a bit of insight onto that one? <laughs> yeah, SS31 is one of my favorites. And it goes back to this idea of these mitochondrial peptides, where uh, even just improving mitochondrial function can have benefits throughout the body in almost every organ system. Um, and so SS31 improves the mitochondria. And the way that it does this is through almost like an aging mechanism. So a little bit of combining more of both my worlds. Uh, most people know that the mitochondria have two membranes, uh, one outer yeah. membrane and then one inner membrane. And that inner membrane is curvy, right? It, you know, it, it waves. But as we get older, like like uh, I often liken it to uh, wearing a T-shirt you you uh, wash too many times, where the neck starts to stretch out and, <laughs> and and fold. It's exactly like that for our mitochondria, where that mitochondria membrane, which is curved at least originally, starts to separate. And when it does, the electron transport chain that is producing that energy gets further apart. And as it gets further apart, it gets less efficient. Um, and so we actually have a, uh, a molecule which is responsible for that curved structure. It's called cardiolipin. And, and uh, many people might actually be hearing about this now if they're into things like cold plunges, for instance, because cold yep. plunges can drastically increase cardiolipin. As really? A wow. Yeah. Another and reason to this, do it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And so this is taking, um, I would say, taking a pharmaceutical approach to that mechanistic action of things like cold plunges, where um, the SS31 is to sort of permeates the mitochondria, goes into that inner membrane, and takes that loosened structure and makes it curved again. So now the electron transport chain is very close together, and you can increase your energy production in a very efficient way. One of my favorite anecdotes to tell about this one is that uh, one injection is the equivalent of uh, the ATP energy equivalent of six months of daily endurance training exercise. You are kidding uh, me. Yeah, and I love that anecdote uh, because... Yeah, it sounds unreal, but it's, I, I show people this in, the, in one of the papers uh, all the time. It is incredibly efficient at restoring function of aging mitochondria, which we know is a huge issue, um, but also affects every system in the body. So it can help with cardiovascular disease. It can help with osteoarthritis. It can help with mental function, Parkinson's, all of these different things where our body needs energy to be produced, um, but is inefficient, could be corrected. Wow, this, this has got to be hitting so many of the hallmarks of aging and slowing a lot of things down, all this stuff, eh? And when you, you know, I'm just like, got to get access to this stuff more <laughs> and easily and, and, and get the education going and, um, you know, like really helping people understand how to do that and how to implement them. And, you know, because it's, it isn't, it isn't easy, but, um, yeah. it, it's just so powerful. I mean, that was completely new to me and I do lots of cold plunges and cold showers and things like that. And it's another reason to, to <laughs> endure the pain. <laughs> There's many reasons. Um, let's look a look briefly at the, uh, some of the, um, neurological uh, stuff for brain, you know, CMAX, CLANC, cerebrolysin, uh, dihexa. Um, can you give me a little bit of a, you know, and I'm sorry to put you on the spot like this, like no, list off no, everything. <laughs> um, when you get someone like you that you can actually like ask a million questions to, it's just like, yes, yeah, I'm, in, I'm in heaven. Um, cerebrolysin, this is a one that's come out of Austria 
I mean, I, I had to go to, you know, all sorts of links to get cerebral isom for mum out of Austria. And unfortunately, I could only get the low dose, like one mil um, yeah. little things, which really isn't enough, is it? Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about cerebral isom, if you know. Yeah. So cerebral isom, you know, again, another one that I, I, I like a lot. Um, and, you know, it's approved in over 60, 70 countries. Um, so it is, you know, it is a, certainly a drug out there. Um, people yeah. always get a little bit thrown off when we talk about the the creation of this small this drug yeah. because it, instead of a single molecule, it, what it really is is a collection of different peptizing products, um, and it's really created from actually uh, uh, basically porcine brains, yeah. um, and and so they sort of lice these tissues. Um, and, and it's originally used for things like TBI and, and stroke, where mm. you have a lot of really, uh, I would say, uh, uh, brain issues, uh, particularly, you know, losing brain blood flow, um, having a lot of cells die within the brain. Um, and this is usually infused as an IV at really large volumes over several yeah. days to basically increase things like BDNF, this brain-derived nootropic factor, to help your brain survive. Um, essentially. Um, and, uh, and so it's been used a lot acutely in, in these, uh, after a major event that might hurt the brain. But even I would say in our anecdotal experience, we've seen, um, I would say people with neurodegenerative conditions or even people like myself that have conditions like, uh, genetic, uh, conditions like APO4 variants, yeah. um, you know, have some improvement or, or help even in a preventative strategy, increasing some of those molecules that might reduce symptoms as they age. Um, and, and so cerebralizing certainly, you know, uh, a product that uh, is a little bit outside of that world of performance and doping, but for mental performance and for, for mental, uh, I'd say brain aging, it's certainly a product that's exciting. Yeah. Especially after things like stroke, you know, and I just wish it was here available so that we could get those infusions after stroke or aneurysm or things like that and actually help people, but it, um, not here yet, but um, very, very powerful uh, thing. And then you've got C-Lank and C-Max. Um, yeah. Tell us a little bit about C-Lank for starters. Yeah, so those are those Russian peptides, um, right, that we, we sort of talked yeah. about earlier. Um, and, uh, and so they were created, uh, by the Russians, uh, and, and, and they both have slightly different profiles despite being very similar. They're really short. So C-Link is, you know, seven amino acids. Um, and it's actually an analog of a human, um, IgG molecule called Tufsin. So a little bit more related to the immune system, at least at first. But when they started to use this, uh, they found that it had a lot of neurological related, um, benefits. So, um, for instance, helping with anxiety, um, uh, helping with, um, even and, you know, GABA neuro, uh, GABAergic neurotransmission, or, um, you know, just, I would say, improving uh, even blood sugar profiles. So it had a lot of different effects, but I think that the thing that most everyone uses it for now is still reducing inflammation, particularly brain inflammation and reducing anxiety, because um, it can have a, certainly a, a potent anxiolytic effect. Yeah, which is, you know, in today's age with uh, so much mental health issues going <laughs> after the, what we've all been through in the last few years, maybe one to put on your radar. Just interrupting the show to let you know about our patron community here and the podcast at Pushing the Limits. We've been going for eight years and we really need your support to keep the show on air and free to everybody so that everyone gets this fantastic information uh, from all these great doctors, scientists, athletes, business people from all around the world. So we would love you to come and join us. You get a lot of exclusive member benefits when you do, but really it's about supporting the show and keeping it on air. And for a coffee or two a month, that it would be fantastic if you can come and join us. You can go to patron.lisatamati.com. That's patron.lisatamati.com and check it all out. And CMAX, what does that do? Is it is a slightly different? 
approach? Yeah, so CMAX um, in, instead is based off of, uh, I would say, you know, uh, another sort of molecule, ACTH, uh, which is produced by our body. And actually the same with dihexa. They're both sort of related off this molecule. Huh. Um, and ACTH for forever um, has had uh, some brain improvement, performance-related improvements. And, and that's, I think, what they saw with the CMAX is that um, when administered, uh, they saw better performance on neurological function exams, um, but particularly even things like ADHD, um, you know, have been improved. So better focus, better, better, better memory. I think that for those two products, um, they're sort of mild in effect. Uh, it's not going to be like taking an Adderall necessarily. Um, but, you know, you're really just, I would say, uh, signaling, as you mentioned earlier, um, these, these types of processes, which leads to better focus, better concentration, better memory um, for a shorter period of time. Yeah, which is really, really important in today's world too. And and the dihexa is is more sort of uh you know, um neurological disease sort of focus more. Yeah. So, you know, in particular, um, you know, I always recommend people watch one video on this um, because it shows, I think, some of the potency on this. But if you just search the creator, uh, Joseph Harding, if you just mm-hmm. search Joseph Harding uh, uh, lecture on dihexa, the dihexa is, again, based off that ACTH molecule, but they wanted to make a version that was orally bioavailable, one that could have, uh, you know, be dosed in an easy fashion. Um, mm-hmm. And when they did, they found that they, this dihexa had 10 million times the potency of brain nootropic factor. Holy um, crap, really? Yeah, it's a million times, which is almost scary in terms of you know how potent yeah. it is. And, and you might want to be careful with it. But then they started to use it in these animal models with unbelievable results. And so my favorite video is going back to it is on Vimeo by Joseph Harding. And he shows um, some research work he's done in his lab where he takes three mice um, and, and they do what they call a hanging uh, a, a test. So they put the first two paws for the, I, I think they're actually rats, but uh, they put the front two paws on this clothesline, just like they're in a pull-up position, right? Yeah. Um, and uh, one of the mice had Parkinson's uh, or induced Parkinson's model. The other one had uh, induced Parkinson's and treated with dihexa. And then the other one is your normal mouse. Um, and so you see these three mouse line up side by side, all put on the, the, the clothesline at the exact same time. And uh, they see how long they can hang there. Wow. Um, and as you would imagine, the Parkinson's mouse who is induced Parkinson's doesn't have great muscle strength um, uh, and, and drops fairly quickly. Um, then you have the Parkinson's mouse treated with dihexa and the regular mouse. Um, and you know, you, you now here you're wondering what who's going to fall first, right? Yeah. You know, it's, it's gonna be, uh, and 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 what we see is that the, the actually the normal untreated mouse dies first, or I should say, uh, drops first, drops off first, um, and wow. by a wide margin, by a wide margin, almost the dihexatreated mouse is almost two times um, uh, longer on that uh, hanging, uh, and even in the slides before he shows in this presentation, you can see all of the neuronal connections that have been increased through this dihex administration, um, even with these these histology related wow. slides. So it is a very potent, um, I would say, uh, neurological product that is um, is, is very very exciting. Right, I'm going to go and talk to my longevity doctor that mum's under and see whether we can get dihexa, <laughs> and if that's, that's appropriate for her. Um, <laughs> that sounds very interesting. And, of course, you know, for Parkinson's and multiple sclerosis, would it have an effect on multiple sclerosis, perhaps? 
You know, I've heard anecdotally, yes. Um, but you know, MS is is uh, is a difficult one. Um, yeah. it, you know, it, 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 it's hard, I think, to make some some big impacts. But but I've certainly heard uh, of, of MS patients undergoing a, a combination of a lot of these products, the, the dihexa, the cerebralisin, um, and 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 I, I've certainly heard that it has a positive effect in some patients. Yeah, we need more studies as usual. You know, and hopefully there'll be you know, some of those coming. So last thing on the on the peptides uh, that I wanted to talk about, or actually two, one is, uh, I don't know if you know this one, PNC27, uh, anti-cancer peptide. Um, what's your take on that? Um, yeah, because yeah. that's quite exciting. Of course, cancer is, you know, a big topic of mine. Um, yeah, what's your take on that? Yeah, lots of variants of uh, PNC versions. Um, some work better for some other ca- cancers than others. And I think it's very, very exciting. Um, basically, you know, what it's doing is um, interacting with this sort of cell death complex with P53, um, yep. MDM2, um, yep. this other sort of protein and, and encouraging cell death. So basically, you know, finding uniquely cancer cells and then encouraging them to kill themselves, essentially. Um, and some of the results in, in laboratory animals were unbelievable. I even uh, was talking to some of the original authors from some of these paper, papers, um, and they would be able to inject just a tumor, uh, you know, even even a, a 30 gram tumor and have it disappear overnight in some of their animals. Um, it was really incredible. Um, that is one I think that is a little bit further away in, from clinical development than many of the others and, and might require, I would say, some, uh, some caveats in terms of its administration and use. Um, but still exciting nonetheless. By, and, and I think you're starting to see, um, the PNC is a good example of how you can modify these natural products to have really unique, uh, strategies and structures. So things that might only penetrate cancer cells, yeah. for instance, yeah. or, or might be able to find cells in vascular tissue or cells in a certain type. You can get really targeted and really precise. And I think that, uh, the PNC is a great example of that because it has a penetration peptide in it, um, that allows it to penetrate these cells, get into them and then, uh, bind to these complexes and, and cause cell death. Yeah. Yeah. Pretty much. That's, and so, you know, without any collateral damage you know you've got your chemo that sort of wipes the good the bad and the ugly out um but does a heck of a lot of damage and downsides and aging and all the rest of it um but that just goes after the cancer cells docks onto the receptors or the you know and then blows them up <laughs> it's like yeah. oh um you got to actually yeah. um i was talking to one of my um teachers and she was saying you got to watch for a Herx reaction on that. Like it's, you can be so powerful that you can knock them all off at once. And, uh, you know, <laughs> it's a little bit and, too quick. Um, that's the other really interesting thing is that the mechanism of cell death is not lysis, which would be, you know, sometimes very difficult because you break those cells open. They have cell lysis syndrome, um, which could cause a lot of downstream issues. But what we're actually doing is apoptosis where the cells are killing themselves in a very sustainable, non-inflammatory fashion also as well, um, which again is a, a, another testament to the potential of these things and, and their specificity to get exactly what you want with none of what you don't. Oh, look, I hope they hurry up those um, things because we need things for cancer. We definitely need things for cancer. And the last one is uh, the, 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 the growth hormone secretagogues. Um, you know, your epimoralin, semimoralin, tesimoralin, uh, CJC, all of that sort of stuff. Um, which one's your favorite and why? And why not just go growth hormone? You know, like why not just go straight to the growth hormone if that's what we're trying to achieve? 
Yeah, that's a good place to start, I think. Uh, why not growth hormone? And and I think that the answer is, is multiple. Uh, one is, I think, cost is a huge one. Um, the other is that you can overdose on growth hormone if you dose it too much. You can see this in, uh, you know, acromegaly uh, people who are obviously, you know, have their axial bones are, are, you know, too big and they're very tall, but also even bodybuilders who have done this, uh, things like growth hormone for years where they're increasing their IGF-1. 90% of the IGF-1 receptors are found in the gut. And so you see this almost distended abdomen. Uh, they call it even Columboism off of, uh, you know, one of the bodybuilders who was famous for uh, this distended abdomen where it looks like they have a belly, but you still see abs uh, yeah. because they're pushing out um, that. So there's no use of overdosing some of these secretagogues, which are happening in a more endogenous fashion, not necessarily giving you growth hormone, but encouraging your body and your pituitary to release growth hormone. And so that can be a little bit more natural. So the cost is one, it's, it's less, uh, cheap, it's less uh, expensive. Uh, you've also got then, uh, the, I would say the inability to overdose, um, cause your body will still self-regulate. Um, and then, uh, beyond that, I think even from a prescribing place, if you're a physician, um, you know, in the United States, growth hormone is one of the only products you can't prescribe off label. Um, and, and so, uh, so this gives you some more flexibility in dosing it and correcting sort of minor deficiencies that happen with growth hormone deficiency as we age, um, and, or as we might become more obese or, uh, some of those other things and then sort of establishing a, a more optimal, uh, hormone system can help you get over some of those things like obesity, if you seem stuck or stagnant. Um, and, and so, uh, the growth hormone secretagogue not only have, I think, some of those effects on adiposity and visceral adiposity, uh, but can also do things like reduce triglycerides, also wow. improve energy, help improve sleep. Um, and they can do so in a, in, a, in a mechanism which is a little safer uh, than growth hormone and, and a lot less expensive. And, and there's, you know, different combinations. You know, a lot of people take tesmorelin and ipamorelin sort of, uh, I think, was it ipamorelin, together. Mm-hmm. Um, and sort of, you know, get much more of a, a bigger effect and a more synergistic effect. Is that right? Yeah, certainly. Thing? Whenever yeah. you're so, and, and that's because you're basically, there are two receptors on the pituitary we're trying to hit. One is uh, sort of the ghrelin receptor or the growth hormone secretagogue receptor. The other one is usually used to receiving input from the hypothalamus. It's the growth hormone uh, releasing hormone receptor. So you have these two receptors on the uh, your pituitary, which will regulate growth hormone release. Um, and when you hit both of them at the same time, you get multiplicative benefits. You increase that growth hormone level. Um, but now with some of the newer secretagogues, you might not even need a paired dosing strategy. Um, you know, products like the MK677, which is orally bioavailable, have very big increases in IGF-1, which is a surrogate marker for how much growth hormone we're releasing. Um, and uh, even some of these newer ones like anamorelin, um, again, very, very similar. It can be orally bioavailable, massive increases. Oh, and wow. probably my favorite is the tessamorelin. Um, that is actually an FDA-approved product for AIDS lipodystrophy. So that same, um, I would say, uh, uh, imbalance in, in sort of metabolic signaling that causes a lot of fat to get around your organs. Um, and uh, that one, the average increase in IGF-1 is 181 points. It reduces triglycerides. It reduces visceral adipose tissue, it reduces your carotid into immediate thickness and therefore wow. reduces your risk of cardiovascular disease. It's probably my favorite out of all of them. Wow. That's just, I'm, 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 I've got a hundred questions off the back of that because our growth hormone sort of drops off a cliff after the age of sort of 25 or so. And, you know, we can do things like sauna and, and weight training and stuff to try to in, increase our growth hormone. But, um, and, but then there's a downside of, of, of it as well. Um, 
the IGF-1 and the growth hormones, you know, are implicated in, in some cases in, in, in cancers like the, the colon cancer, uh, breast cancer, um, you know, the hormone-related cancers, um, prostate, I believe, is it? Um, that can be affected by IGF-1 being too high. Is that, is that, is that a problem? Is that something we need to be aware of, uh, you know, when dosing these things? Yeah, you know, I think that that uh, the relationship between growth hormone and cancer, particularly with IGF one, is is uh, debatable. Um, right. uh, you know, I think that there is certainly um, a lot of evidence to suggest, suggest that it might not be the best uh, for cancer development, and other studies which show, for instance, things like pediatric patients who use growth hormone after chemotherapy as a, as children who have even less occurrence as they get older. But it's always hard to to you know do those studies uh, with really high resolution. Uh, but I think it's certainly something to think about. Absolutely, something your physician should certainly be considering is your individual risk. Um, you know, in the case of longevity, even growth hormone is, yeah, I would say, exactly. pro-aging. Um, you know, I think in, in what we see in our, you know, uh, our multitude of testing that generally higher growth hormone, higher IGF-1 tends to lead to shorter lifespans. Um, and, and so I think that uh, uh, everything needs to be considered in its in its natural balance. Um, and that's why going to position is so important to make sure that all of these considerations are, are, are uh, included in, in your own treatment plan. Absolutely, absolutely. And yeah, there's this big debate, isn't it? IGF-1, good, bad, and not good. <laughs> you know, should we all be, you know, um, in a calorie deficit forever and look like shriveled up prunes or should we have a little bit of muscle and grow a bit a little bit? And I think the truth probably lies somewhere in the middle, you know, yeah. that we need to just be um, <laughs> cycling these things, mTOR and AMPK, and trying to get yeah. the right combination for ourselves, which is not easy. Um, but um, yeah, it's always a bit of a more nuanced conversation. And when you get these people that are extreme, you know, extreme calorie <laughs> calorie restriction is the only way. And it's like, well, you know, uh, <laughs> I think there's more nuance to that conversation. Um, right. Let's now dive into, because you're on the, you're in the hot seat today, Ryan. Um, <laughs> let's talk about true diagnostic for those watching on, uh, on YouTube. Um, I've got my pet ready to test today. Thank you so much for uh, your team sending it out. Um, I'm going to be testing it. And, and true diagnostic is looking at methylation, uh, markers on your DNA and then helping. You've got some, some super sophisticated algorithms and things that you've developed developed and others have developed and results that come out of this. And people might be looking at that and going, why do I want to know how fast I'm aging? You know, like, why do I want to know if I'm five years older than I actually am, you know, from a, a why, why should we be doing this? You know, like, because it's an argument that, you know, some people can do a test like this and just get stressed out yeah. <laughs> because it's not come back the result. And I actually wanted people to look at this as like, this is a, a snapshot in time and we can very much influence, now that we know where you're standing, whether it's good or bad or not, we can yeah. influence it to go the other way instead of the head in the sand ostrich approach, which I think does not work in, in healthcare at all. You know? <laughs> <laughs> it's scary, got to be a little bit brave, but um, tell us about True Diagnostic and you founded this company and it's gone wildfire. Um, yeah. and, and this is going to affect all areas of medicine in the next few years, we hope. Um, yeah. if the, you know, the, the, the big ship of medicine turns quickly enough to <laughs> actually bring it into play. But tell us about it. Tell us about all this amazing stuff. Yeah, I think your intro was great. I think that, uh, you know, even as abstracting from any company, I think that 
trying to draw the importance to aging is something that, that is certainly a passion of mine. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, aging is the number one risk factor for every chronic disease and death. And so as, uh, you know, people are, are sitting here, maybe listening and, and they're relatively healthy and they're thinking, you know, hey, should I, should I try a growth hormone security gog? Should I, you know, do BVC? I think that they might want to even rephrase it to think of what is your biggest risk factor and how can you mitigate that risk factor for every outcome? And if, if you're asking that question, the answer is aging. And so the question then goes, well, how do I quantify it and how do I change it? Um, and, and so I think that the tools to measure aging have not really been there much, uh, you know, throughout the years, even in the, I always say in the 1920s, people were just having their biological age as, uh, or the age of their body, um, yeah. uh, by sort of saying it's the chronological age plus one year for every pack per day. Um, really <laughs> crude measurements. Yeah. <laughs> and, and so then we got a little bit more sophisticated with things like telomeres, but the problem with telomere length is it, it's not very predictive of outcomes. Um, and so, Really, what happened is these DNA methylation clocks were starting to be created in 2013, and um, they were originally trained to predict just chronological age. So, how old are you, just from a chronological perspective? Um, but and so they were first used for things like crime scene investigations to see how old someone was, or they were used uh, to date refugees. Um, but what they started to see is that it was also those people who were older than their chronological age were at negative risk for health outcomes. And those people who were younger were protected from those health outcomes, meaning that this wasn't just measuring your chronological age. It was really measuring the age of your body or, or that that big risk factor, which uh, which is aging itself. Yeah, no, that's absolutely gold. And then and then you've got um like the the Dunedin Pace study, right? Um, so that we were talking a little bit briefly about Steve Horvath's work, who um, I agree with you. I think he should get a Nobel Prize um, yeah. because this is just so so important. The stuff that and there's been many iterations of that. And then there's this, that, uh, which is the connection to New Zealand. And I'm going to Dunedin next week. I'm actually going down mm-hmm. to talk to to some doc- doctors and things down there. So um, this study has been going since 1972, I believe, and um, it, 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 they studied, uh, I heard you talk about these three-year-olds, a thousand three-year-olds back in 1975, I think, and, and they could already tell that the rates of aging were different in the three-year-olds, and now they've extrapolated those are now in their late 40s, I believe, um, and they can see that their aging has um, corresponded with how much they were aging already as three-year-olds. Tell us a little bit about the Dunedin Pace study. Dunedin yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, you're exactly right, though. And it's great that you're, uh, yeah, I couldn't go on a, a New Zealanders podcast uh, without talking about <laughs> the study. But no, you this, couldn't. <laughs> you know, first off, it's amazing, amazing. It's probably, in my opinion, it is the best age diagnostic tool that exists right at the moment. Um, it is, it is predictive of outcomes, uh, predictive of quality of life. It is an amazing tool. But the, the study was, as you mentioned, created by rounding up a, a thousand and thirty-seven people, um, from the moment they were born, um, in 1972. Now, and we actually to our 51-year age follow-up in January, um, and so uh, and we and we plan to can I think continue to track these them throughout their their aging process. And so by tracking them longitudinally, we can get a much better signal of what's happening and what's changing within their own physiolo- physiology um, as they get older to more precisely quantify it. Um, and so we're doing things like telomere length, as we mentioned. We're doing things like you know gum imaging, retinal scans, brain MRIs, um, and we're we're be able to 
create an algorithm that now has been validated uh, across multiple people um, in multiple different ethnicities um, and, and really holds true in almost every cohort we look at, uh, where we're able to find associations with things that might be pro-aging or not as aging. Um, so in the case of caloric restriction, for example, we saw that a reduced caloric restriction reduced the rate of aging in individuals compared to those who did not caloric restrict. Um, so it, it's a really great cohort that's been able to create um, an algorithm that can look at this gene expression data um, and then be able to quantify where you're aging. And we know that that's connected to everything like facial aging, your, your IQ even, your mental processing speeds, your, um, you know, really everything that makes life worth living. And so uh, to counter that, I think that argument you mentioned earlier is why do I, why would I want to know this? Um, I, I, not only is it changeable, um, not only is it predictive outcomes, but it's also predictive of all these quality of life outcomes. Um, you know, all the things that make life worth living, how you move, how you think, how you look even. Um, and so if you can delay that, if you can delay all those negative outcomes, uh, you can have a longer and healthier lifespan. Absolutely. And, and, and if you can turn back the clock, I think it was seven years that you said you dropped the disease rates worldwide. If we could turn everybody's clock back seven years, which is not unrealistic with the knowledge that we have now, um, we would drop disease rates by 50% around the world instantly. And that would save billions and billions of dollars. We'd have a workforce that could work longer. We would, you know, like just, just yeah. phenomenal. Like, um, so the implications of this, if people can grasp this concept, which is a big concept to sort of get, but we can actually intervene into this these the, the markers, the results that we get out of these tests. And then you've got all these reports that you have and you've got the Dunedin one, but you've got all these other ones and, you know, immune system and you can you can list them off for me, um, which actually look at various aspects of ageing and how are you doing in your immune system and how is your, you know, um, uh, have you been a smoker? Have you drunk too much alcohol? It's all there, like a yeah. record, like someone was <laughs> recording. <laughs> and so... Maybe let's step back a bit to methylation. When you say methylation, most people's um, brain goes to, oh, the MTHFR gene, and I've got that variant thing. Uh, yeah. And so uh, that, that goes to that detox process, that, uh, that ability to methylate out. Um, so can you explain the difference between that type of methylation and the methylation that's actually going on in the DNA? Yeah, certainly. And, and this is a question we get all the time um, because, you know, people think MTHFR genes, COMT genes, um, and that is definitely a methylation process. It's a biochemical methylation process um, where we're attaching these methyl groups, just one carbon, three hydrogens to different things. And so in the case of, uh, you know, methylation with MTHFR, you might uh, not have the ability to methylate as well, leading to a buildup of homocysteine, which causes negative cardiovascular outcomes. Um, that is certainly an important process. But in our day-to-day -day basis, methylation is also used for gene silencing. And this is incredibly important because every single cell in our body, our skin, our heart, our liver, all have the exact same DNA, but our cells obviously behave very differently. You don't want your heart cells behaving like your skin, for instance. Um, that would be very bad. And so <laughs> the way that our genes go from doing being able to do anything to being able to do their specific function is by what genes are turned on and what genes are turned off. Um, and the off switch, so to speak, is DNA methylation. Um, because whenever you attach that carbon group, you can't transcribe the DNA anymore. Um, or you transcribe it less. Uh, and uh, by doing that, you mean you make less of a certain uh, item or, or, or peptide or protein or, or mRNA uh, profile. Um, and, and so that's really what we're measuring. We sort of consider the on or off switches of our DNA. Um, and this is, I think, 
um, why the things like the Human Genome Project, while super exciting, didn't have the biggest impact that we thought they would. We thought we might solve every issue, but really it's just one piece of a very complex puzzle um, and gene regulation is incredibly important. And so um, this, these DNA methylation patterns have been really exciting in aging, but they're also exciting in almost every other area of medicine. Um, you look at even uh, cancer diagnostics. Now we can even diagnose cancer at stage zero. Yeah. Uh, we're 50 different types of cancer with one test. Um, it's a grail can- test, isn't it? Yeah, exactly. And now yeah. that they're there are more coming on the market every single day. Um, uh, And, uh, and so, so this information um, is, is a lot of really exciting information, but we have no idea how to read it. Um, Right. So we have all of these patterns and this history of this log, but it's in a completely different language. And so that's really what I say we try and do at True Diagnostic is to interpret that methylation language into things that are actionable and understandable. Um, Aging has certainly taken the lead there. Um, But uh, you know, we have diabetes, risk predictors. We have cardiovascular disease risk predictors, Alzheimer's risk predictors. Um, we just finished some really exciting work uh, with Harvard. We'll probably be publishing in three weeks or so, um, which is actually able to even quantify levels of proteins and metabolites. So we can actually tell you how much vitamin D, how much DHEA you have, how much omega-3s, how much spermidine or biotin you might have within your system um, endogenously. Nicotinamide riboside, all of these wow. different with just a single drop of blood. We can even tell you with a single drop of blood already, your immune cell subsets, um, much like flow cytometry would be, which is a very expensive test. It, it's a $6 billion a year industry, at least here in the United States, um, but it requires large blood volumes. It requires temperature controlled um, storage. It, it's very expensive. And now we can do the exact same thing with just a drop of blood. Um, oh, and, and so, amazing. Uh, yeah, it's, it's super. We just published that um, study as a preprint about three weeks ago, actually, with Harvard and Johns Hopkins and the Chinese Academy of Sciences. And, and so the, the ability to take this information and to use it to understand it for health goals is um, is extremely important because it tells you what's going on right at the moment. Um, and it also gives you some history and some background. And then can then so we can sort of define what optimal function is. And then we can see well, how we deviate from it uh, to pick up things very early that might be going wrong. So this is when you, you, you got all these reports now that you currently have, but very soon you may be able to get reports that are, what are your spermidine levels, which is a product that I'm super keen on starting a brand with shortly. Um, you'll be able to see that. You'll be able to say, yeah, your vitamin D levels are at, you know, with, um, you know, all of this sort of information is, you know, like having these tests regularly would be just gold to be able to see then the progression. So we now we have blood tests, like currently we have blood tests where we can test a few things, right? And, yeah. and I'm always like trying to get people to or get their doctors to um, give them a blood test every six months because for me it's like, well, we're driving along this car without a dashboard, you know, yeah. And but a blood it's test is a blood test and that's not the greatest of, you know, like if we can have this sort of test done, where we can see, hey, your rate of aging, you're aging only 0.8 of a year for every year that you're alive. We're winning, man. We are yeah. dropping our risk for disease like through <laughs> the floor, just doing that, right? That's yeah. that's, that's massive. Uh, if you're a little bit over one, oh, we better put the brakes on, you know. Um, and, exactly. I, and I heard a, um, a fabulous analogy by do- Dr. Peter Atia the other day, yeah. and I was listening to one of his podcasts, and he was like, there's a race car analogy, right? You've got your foot on the brake and on the accelerator and you're going from A to B and B being death, jump, falling off a cliff, right? And mm-hmm. we're all got the foot on the accelerator to some degree, but it's how much are you putting on the brake 
and how much are you putting on the accelerator? And what are the things that you can do to jam that brake on pretty damned hard to be slowing that car down as it's going? We're going to go off the cliff one day, but yeah. if we can slow that down, and this this true diagnostic test enables me to see how fast am I going towards the cliff. Also, what I've done in the past, how much that's damaged me and how I might need to double down. And part of this analogy was with, you know, if you're a 20 year old and you're, you're a long way from the cliff edge, hopefully, unless you get run over by a car <laughs> or a bus, um, you, 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 you can take it a little bit easier. But if you're uh, someone who's got stage four cancer and the cliff is just there, you better be going hard out. Like you better yeah, be chucking absolutely. everything on that brake pedal, you know, like really, <laughs> really hard. And I thought that was an absolutely brilliant analogy for true diagnostic and what you're doing, actually, because it is like putting the brakes on this area, immune, cardio, uh, smoking, alcohol, nutrition, and you'll be able to see all of that effects and measure that then every six months or a year or, or whatever. Um, in a test that's not that expensive, you know, yeah. like, and I'm sure over time things will become more democratized and things will become cheaper, hopefully. But then th this this will be available then, you know, like, I feel like we're riding the cusp here. Yeah, you know, no, I, I would certainly agree. Uh, you know, we, we often get, uh, I would say, the unfortunate comparison to, uh, you know, Theranos, some of these other companies that, you know, have said you can do everything with one drop of blood. And, oh, and we, no. certainly, <laughs> we certainly can't do everything, but we can come very close and, and still have clinical value and even sometimes beat some of the traditional measures. I always like to use C-reactive protein as a good example. You know, C-reactive protein for years and years and years has been a marker of inflammation. Um, but uh, our predictors of, of C-reactive protein with DNA methylation actually add clinical resolution. We're able to see patterns that we couldn't see with even just regular CRP. So we look at these cohorts where if you just measured CRP, you'd see no trend throughout lifespan. But then you look at our DNA methylation-related CRP and you see steady increases because what happens is CRP as a measurement is too fluctuating. And, and you know, it, can, it can go up by a thousand percent in, in an yeah. hour. Yeah. Whereas these methylation locations can be a, almost like a, your a, a three month running average of some of these things and give you a good idea of what's going on and encompassing it throughout your entire body. And so, so I think that uh, that feedback and that resolution is going to provide, um, I would say, benefits among even our traditional testing and sometimes even surplant that and other times not come close where we can only have to use what's traditional. Uh, but, but we need to find out where it's really effective and start to build those out. Yeah, and and you test us, you can see into the locations of methylation like nine hundred thousand spots on the DNA or something crazy like that. Is that correct? Yeah. So you you yeah, like yeah, you know, just talk us through a little little bit on the in the science of actual what the test does. You get the 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 test back from the from the client, and you can order this to your house. We're going to have it in the shop. We're organizing that with your team. Um, they can send that back in. What happens when it when it hits the laboratory when you when you get it? Yeah. So the first step is DNA extraction. We have to actually get the DNA out um, because what we're looking at again is just a small carbon molecule on those nucleotides, those ACTGs that that everyone's familiar with, and they usually attach to these cytosines. So methylated cytosines are what we're looking at. And so the first step is extracting the DNA. Then we do something called a bisulfate conversion, which allows us to see 
where those methylation locations are. And then we sequentially sequence with these arrays, which uh, exactly right, we measure now with some, some newer, better arrays that just came out. Uh, we can measure right around a million locations. Wow. Um, and, uh, and and basically, whenever we, we do this, we get um, a number between zero and one uh, at each location. And uh, that number is relative to the percentage of methylation at a particular location. So if the number is at 85, that's a high degree of methylation, meaning generally we're thinking that gene is going to be more silenced than, than not. Um, whereas something has low methylation, the 5%, we would think that gene is very much highly upregulated or turned on. Um, and so what we're doing then is just uh, taking use of those million numbers, uh, essentially, um, and creating algorithms to interpret them for any type of outcome. So it could be age, it could be, uh, you know, when are you likely to lose your hair? When are you uh, you know, likely to have a heart attack. It could be any of these things um, if we have the correct data. Um, and, and so, uh, so that's sort of, I would say, what happens is just a, a lot of numbers between zero and one. And, and you've got like acetylation and methylation, but you can only measure the methylation. Is that correct? At the moment, uh, methylation is a more robust platform uh, to measure. You know, acetylation is, is uh, I would say, a little bit like the on switch. Um, you know, some people could consider the, the on switch taking off DNA methylation. But um, with acetylation, uh, our, you know, our DNA is mostly tightly wound. Right. Yeah. Uh, and whenever we have acetylation, what happens is the proteins, which really keep that DNA tight, the chromatin, uh, they can attach and, and almost, uh, it, these acetyl group, acetyl groups have a positive charge. Uh, so I oftentimes, you know, anyone who's ever had two magnets and forced the opposite poles together, that's pretty much exactly what you're doing with your DNA is you're having that little positive charge. And by, by that positive charge, you push away and that opens up this DNA, which allows it to be read. Right be used. Um, and so acetylation, because it's protein based, is a little bit harder to do um, from a, a diagnostic perspective. So we don't have as much, I would say, high resolution tools where we, we can measure a lot of things at one time. But certainly acetylation will be just as important as methylation one day. Right. And you'll be able to see a little bit more. And there, there was one in one of your lectures that I was listening to, one of your clinical lectures, um, there was this beautiful um, pyramid that you you showed and it was like the the, the genetics and then the epigenome and then the the transcriptome yeah. I think it was and proteome yeah. and the, you know all these omics um and it sort of like it, it joined a few dots for me as to how that whole process worked um and you know we might be able to pull it up at, at some point and stick it in the show notes or something because it was really ah oh, so that's how all the omics work and <laughs> And, and what yeah. the stages that it goes through. And when, when we give you a test like this, is it just a snapshot in time? Because like when I go back to that Dunedin study and you looked at the three-year-olds, you could already tell their rate of aging at three years old, and now they're 40-something. And um, these people were not told how to live properly. Like they weren't told to stop smoking and do this and be that and to whatever to slow the aging process down so they've just lived their life. Um, but did you see in the cohort there that some people had lived a healthier life and then what they'd done to, to, to age less? Um, you've got that beautiful facial recognition, to, uh, facial recognition, facial, uh, diagram on one of your reports that sort of showed, uh, it was just a computer simulation, but it was, um, quite interesting. 
Yeah. Know? It's, so, so uh, lots of questions to answer there. You know, yeah, I think sorry. It, no, 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 it, no it, it's great. I love it. I, this is, I, yeah, I love talking about these things. But, uh, you know, in the case of the point in time, I think, conversation, um, the answer is yes and no. Uh, because some things, uh, some things that happen to our methylation are permanent. Um, you know, for instance, let's take right. smoking as an example. If you smoke, uh, you'll never get rid of that DNA methylation signature wow. completely. We can wow. tell if you've ever been a former smoker. Um, and we can also tell you if you've been uh, a former smoker. So, uh, so we can tell you right. if you're a current smoker, a former smoker, or a never smoker um, just by your DNA methylation patterns. And, and if you're, uh, you know, let's say you're smoking and you decide to stop, um, you know, you, your methylation patterns will change, but they'll change slowly. And then they'll ultimately plateau to a place that they will never change again. Um, wow. and, and so there's some things that are irreversible. And, and in, in the case of, you know, for instance, the duty pays, um, you know, that's what we're picking up on. It may be some early life types of things that set patterns, which are really unfortunate for the rest of life. And, and so there have been studies now with thousands of, of younger children we've, we've done, which show adverse childhood experiences, even socioeconomic stress um, can play an impact on your rate of aging. And that, uh, you know, unfortunately, there's nothing that People can do about that, um, right? You're born into the environment that you are, but isn't it better to know and then take other preventative action um, yeah, exactly. earlier in life? And, and so that's sort of our our argument. Um, and in the case of you know even the, the facial aging, that it's a good example of that because um, you know most people would not consider 45 years of age to be incredibly old. Uh, you know most people would say that that's uh, you know uh, still you know younger yeah. a part of the life yeah. with the majority of life left to live. But if you we took visual facial images of these people in this cohort. So uh, we put them all in a room, took, you know, hundreds of cameras all around the wall and just imaged their face. Um, and then what we did is we created composite images of, of these groups of people. Uh, so we basically just put them all together into one random person. Um, and what we saw was that if we separated these by their rates of aging as the, by this algorithm, we could see that the people with the highest rates of aging by this algorithm look to be 20 or 30 years older than those people who had the youngest um, age. And so it goes to show you, and, and I always tell people, you know, keep doing your Botox, your aesthetic procedures, your retinols, keep doing that because you're treating the symptoms of skin aging or aging in general, but also fix the underlying cause itself, which is the aging process. Exactly. And if you can improve that process, it's not just the lack of disease, right? It's also all of those other things you already prioritize, which will also be benefited. That's, that's just gold. And you can see it on that, that, that composite photo that you've um, made of, you know, and you, and you know, in your, your friend circle, if you've got people that are aging well or not aging well. And, and, and it, it also points to the fact that the stuff that our 15 year olds, 10 year olds, 20 year olds are doing now is having an impact on their life because we sort of seem that, you know, when we're young, we're bulletproof. We can get away with drinking too much, smoking the wrong stuff, doing things. We can't. It's there in the record. And why give yourself that disadvantage, if you like, yeah. and, and heading towards that, that cliff, that analogy that I was talking about before, quicker because yeah. you didn't. And then there are the epigenetic stuff that even come through intergenera intergenerationally. That's a word um, <laughs> that you can't do anything about, but then you might need to double down on the stuff that we, we do know at the moment. And there may be in the future, there might be ways to undo that damage as well. You know, who knows? 
So, exactly. And I think if there's one way to maybe even leave off with our conversation, it, it's it's talking maybe just a little bit about the most promising thing in aging and from intervention that I've seen. And it's this new idea of cellular reprogramming um, uh, where, uh, you know, people have been able to actually reverse these epigenetic clocks by just giving simple growth factors. Um, and they they don't just they don't just reverse the clocks, they reset them essentially to zero. Um, and uh, and by resetting to zero, we've also now seen for the first time ever in some studies that they also have phenotypic benefits. So in one case, they actually took mice who were blind. They used these factors, reset their epigenetic clocks to zero, and the mice regained vision. Um, and so yeah. uh, some major increases in longevity and health span uh, through tackling aging or is, uh, I think, uh, certainly around the corner. Yeah, and that's all David Sinclair and that type of stuff and the Yamanaka factors and the reprogramming of cells and that stuff's just wild. Like we're living in a science fiction movie sometimes and you think, and that's what I keep saying to my my friends and clients now is that hold your shit together now because in 10 <laughs> years we're going to be able to reverse it and go back to that 20-year-old that we, you know, <laughs> but with the with the intelligence hopefully of a 55-year-old, you know. <laughs> so, exactly, all, all the wisdom. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Wouldn't that be great because, you know, youth is wasted on the young really. Just interrupting the show to let you know about my longevity and anti-aging supplement range. I'd love you to go and check it out. Go to my website, lisatarmity.com and hit the shop button and you'll see a curated range of supplements, the latest in anti-aging, longevity, health optimization, performance optimization. I've gone out into the world, interviewed the most amazing doctors and scientists, as you'll know if you follow the show, and gone and got some of the best products that are out there. Stuff that I give to my family, that's what's in my range so go and check it out at lisatamati.com um (laughs) ryan in respect of your time thank you so much for um being on the show i think we did an absolute stellar job of covering two really huge topics um i'm going to be breaking down this interview into lots of little component parts too i think um to share because this is just you know there was just so many gems of wisdom there um thank you so much for your time and, and i can't wait to do my tests get that back Take a bit of a swallow as I open the reports, <laughs> and hopefully I'm doing okay. Um, and, but if I'm not, then I'll know what to double down on. So really, really fascinated to do this, and I will actually share my um, reports once I get them back on the on the podcast and tell everyone the good, the bad, and the ugly. <laughs> Sounds good. I can't wait to review your report with you. We'll make some time for it. But thanks so much for having me, Lisa. <laughs> Thank you so much, Ryan. Uh, just before we go where can people find you and reach out to your company and you know do all of that sort of stuff I mean we're going to have true diagnostic uh, uh, tests available in my shop soon Um, so make sure you check that out Um, but if they want to follow you or social or any of that sort of stuff yeah, so I, I don't do a lot of social myself, but I'm we do not have surprised, uh, really? <laughs> us at truediagnostic.com uh, or you can even, I always like to give out my email even directly if you have any questions or want to reach me, um, especially in the peptide world. I have so many assets, presentations, documents. Um, I, I always love to, to send over it. And, and so, um, but my email is ryan at truediagnostic, that's T-R-U diagnostic singular.com. Uh, 
That is just absolutely so generous of you, and I'm going to take that, <laughs> take advantage of those, please. Um, I want to find out everything I possibly can about peptides and, and help spread the word down here in New Zealand because we need to get this stuff going faster. <laughs> well, <laughs> thank you. So I, mean, I just, I just, uh, I'll send you my research folder on peptides, which will be, uh, I think it's it's something like fifteen thousand papers uh, <laughs> by product. So if you want to, if you ever want to look at all the thymus and alpha literature, it'll be right there for you oh my god oh my god that would just be absolutely amazing absolutely amazing i really appreciate that please do ryan thank you so much for your time today it's really really appreciated yeah thank you again that's it this week for pushing the limits be sure to rate review and share with your friends head over and visit lisa and her team at lisatamati.com